We often spend so much time thinking about all the things that went wrong during our days, but if you think about it, you know, we all live amazing lives and we have a lot to be thankful for. Welcome to Beyond Speaking with Brian Lord, a podcast featuring deeper conversations with the world's top speakers. I'm Brian Lord, and on the show today, we have American war hero and Paralympic medalist Melissa Stockwell, as she shares the story of dancing with the commander-in-chief, her path to becoming a Paralympic swimmer and triathlete, and the invisible wounds of war. We're excited to have on today Melissa Stockwell. Melissa served in the U.S. Army in Iraq, where she nearly made the ultimate sacrifice. She was the first woman to lose a limb in active combat, and for her services to our country, she was awarded the Bronze Star and Purple Heart. Since then, she's turned herself into a world champion athlete, in fact, a three-time world champion competing in Beijing and Rio. She currently has her eye on competing in the Tokyo 2020 Paralympics. Melissa, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on. Now, you have a pretty amazing story. It's split into a few different parts, um, and it seems to, to start with the military. Um, what made you decide to uh, to go into the military? Is it something you've always always dreamed about, or where did that come from? So I, I, decided I wanted to go into the military. My, my answer is pretty short and sweet, because I, I love our country. I learned at a young age how lucky we were to live here and decided that I wanted to give back and wear our uniform and kind of represent and defend a country that I felt so lucky to be a part of. Now, we have uh, a lot of different speakers in, in different areas. What made you decide to, to choose the Army out of, out of the services? It was always the Army. I, I am not sure why. Um, I don't come from a military family, so it's not like my father was in the Army and that was why. It just kind of, when I wanted to join the military, it was, I, it was the Army just seemed like the natural choice to fall into. So what is that process like when you when you join? Are you looking for a specific thing that you want to do in the army, or or what was your your course and, and rise through the military? So I did ROTC in college, which basically means that I spent uh, my three my sophomore, junior, and senior year taking um, courses that would teach me about the military and kind of everything that encompassed the military, everything from rankings to battle drills to, you know, the history and, and that type of thing. And when I was gradu when I graduated, I was commissioned as a second lieutenant, so an officer into the army. And um, the army kind of ranks you or gives you they they kind of give you choices on which branch and which part of the army you're going to be a part of, but um, it's kind of where their need is as well. So I eventually fell into the Transportation Corps. So I was in the Transportation Corps, part of the Army, and then my first duty assignment was at Fort Hood, Texas as part of the 1st Cavalry Division. Now, how long does it take to, from when you go in, and and, uh, and if you could also mention the years you're going in, but but what's the time from, from going uh, where you first sign up to when you, you actually start active uh, duty, maybe uh, on foreign soil? You know, it kind of it depends on the person and what route they go. So, I mean, personally, I was commissioned as an officer in 2002. I was um, got my first duty assignment about a year later. You kind of go through an officer basic course where you learn all the ins and outs. So for me, all the ins and outs of transportation and vehicles and leading a convoy. I got to my first duty station in the end of 2003, and then we were deployed in March of 2004 over to Iraq. So it kind of it very much depends on the person, on the ways of the world. I mean, you know, some... 
some soldiers are in for 10 years and never uh, never go over to to combat or war zone. It just kind of depends on where where the world is. So uh, how long were you there? Um, I know we mentioned a little bit in the intro uh, about, uh, you know, your life changed on, on one day. How long were you in country before the, uh, the incident or, or your loss occurred? So I was in Iraq for three weeks before I lost my leg. So it's a pretty quick. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I did, I was for three weeks, I was all over Iraq um, with, you know, with with vehicles and leading convoys and then april 13th of 2004 was um the day everything changed and it was it was it was quick i wasn't there very long so can you take us through that day yeah so it was april 13th of 2004 and it was uh basically a routine convoy so i i basically did convoys every day um leading into this day and it it, there wasn't anything super special about it um the the difference in the day of April 13th is that typically I, I would lead the convoy. So I'd be like sitting in the passenger seat next to the driver. But this day I was doing a ride along, which basically meant that I was learning the route because the next day I was going to take over and lead that route. So I was sitting behind the driver, but I didn't really have a, a, a role. Like I didn't really have a job that day other than just to learn the route. We left our, um, our our base, our military base in Iraq um, that morning, and about 10 minutes into the ride, we went under this bridge, like under this underpass, and I mean, deafening boom, black smoke, the smell of metal. I mean, as we are basically our vehicle had been struck by a roadside bomb. So we swerved, our vehicle started to swerve, the windshield was cracked in, we um, kind of ricocheted off of this guardrail, and we ended up ultimately crashing um, into this Iraqi woman's house. And you know, to make what could be, you know, a, a long story pretty short um, that resulted in the loss of my left leg above the knee. It was, it, it was gone. It was severed um, through through the roadside bomb and um, the, the ricocheting off of the guardrail and that type of thing. So, yeah, um, I had a combat medic who was two vehicles back. Um, he he saved my life. He stopped the bleeding. He put a tourniquet on, and then from there, I was rushed into a life-saving surgery at an American hospital, which was right in central Baghdad. So a pretty uh, eventful day. What was that What was that recovery process like? So I, so I spent just a few hours after that initial surgery in Iraq, and then I flew to Launchville, Germany, which you're kind of stabilized before making the long trip back to the U.S. So I was in Germany for about five days, and then I ended up... Um, the following day at Walter Reed Army Medical Center, which at the time was in Washington, D.C., and it was where all the wounded soldiers went from Iraq and Afghanistan. <clears throat> so so getting there and, you know, still a little bit out of it. Um, but when I was, you know, another when a day, another day or two went by, I was able to really look around me and see other soldiers who had lost, you know, much more than I had. So one, two, three limbs their eyesight, traumatic brain injuries. And I looked at myself and thought, I mean, I, I was I was one of the lucky ones. I, I lost one leg. I had three good limbs. I had my life. But I kind of, you know, accepted the loss then and chose to live my life for those who had given the ultimate sacrifice and not wanting to let losing a leg stop me from doing anything that I wanted to do. So, you know, we've talked a little bit about the physical aspect of it and the, and you're, you're just mentioning the, the mental aspect of, of choosing how are you going to do that. That's not the choice that everyone makes. Why do you think you chose to approach it that way? 
you know, I've always been a very optimistic person, probably annoyingly so for some people. Um, but it, it, it almost accelerated it after losing my leg. And I mean, it was all about perspective also. I mean, I think, I think in life, I mean, we all have these, we all have obstacles that we go through. Some are bigger than others and, but it's all relative to your own life. And, you know, when you think about your, your bad days, it's kind of the notion that realizing that there's somebody out there who would, who would love to have my bad days. Like I have it pretty good. So whenever I started to feel bad for myself, kind of looking around and realizing I didn't, I, I, I couldn't feel bad for myself because it could have been so much worse. And on top of that, I had an amazing um, team. So my family, my friends, I mean, my parents were by my side from day one, um, friends that dropped everything they were doing to fly to the hospital to be by my side. So just the realization that I wasn't alone going through this, that there were people there with me who wanted me to get better. Does the military itself um, have have different things to, to kind of help people with a mental uh, process of, of a severe injury like that? They do. So, so Walter Reed or at the military hospital, as you can imagine, I mean, nurses, doctors, therapists, I mean, I, you know, you see them multiple times a week, I mean, every day. And there's also, I mean, there's um, psychologists, psychiatrists, I mean, the, the invisible wounds of war, as a lot of people call them, whether it's, you know, PTS or whatever it may be. I mean, they're very real and the army, I mean, they do the best that they can to, to deal with the soldiers that are, are, are having issues. I mean, I think there are some that definitely go unnoticed and by the wayside, which is unfortunate. Um, but I mean, while I was at Walter Reed and an inpatient, they, they did, I mean, if I needed help, it was there. So I had all the resources that I could ask for. What advice would you give to people going through a really difficult time? Is that it gets better. I mean, it's hard. Like you go through these horrible times and you're like, oh, my life is never going to be the same. It's never going to be the way it used to be. And honestly, maybe it won't be the way that it used to be, but it doesn't mean it can't be as good. So I like to tell people that to number one, find a team, find family, friends that can be your team, find others going through similar circumstances that you can lean on and you can rely on, but also you have to believe in yourself. I mean, you have to believe that you will be better. You have to, you know, have the perseverance to overcome whatever has come your way, knowing that you will be okay on the other side. And sometimes you're even better on the other side. So your story is is not just the military, but as an athlete as well. Uh, what what sports did you play? Uh, you know, obviously you went to the Olympics um, uh, or the Paralympics for uh, triathlon. Uh, were you a triathlete as a kid? No, no, I thought triathletes. I don't even know if I knew what a triathlon was when I was younger. No, definitely <laughs> not a triathlete. <laughs> uh, what what did you start out? Uh, play, or you? Know, what was your sport starting out? Yeah, my sport was gymnastics. So I was a huge gymnast growing up. I you know, I dreamt of going to the Olympics as a gymnast. I was in the gym four plus hours a day. I kind of rose through the levels pretty quickly. Um, was definitely called, I was called an Olympic hopeful at one time. So gymnastics was, was my thing. I mean, I was a gymnast through and through when I was younger. Do you feel like that helped you out in the military? I mean, that's a tremendous amount of discipline to be, especially a, a gymnast or, or any t anything where you're you're called an Olympic hopeful. How did that play into your ability to be a, a soldier? You know, I think sometimes sports and military life they kind of play off each other. I mean, in the you know, as an athlete growing up, I mean, you learn about team, you learn about 
um, trying, doing your best. You learn about, you know, wanting, wanting to win and like prove to yourself that you can be the best. So I think a lot of that kind of leads into those military values of, you know, of, of team, of, you know, being on time, of wanting to teach others or wanting to lead others. So I think a lot of them kind of play off of each other. Who were some of your coaches growing up and, and what did they teach you? So um, I, I actually had a, an Olympic an, an Olympic gymnast, Olga Corbett um, from Russia, who was one of my gymnastics coaches when I was a little bit younger. And she taught me what tough love was. And I, I'm sure that that has played a part in the rest of my life. But I mean, if we, you know, if we fell off the beam, I mean, she told us to get back up. If we were on the bars and we had, you know, calluses and blisters and rips all over our hands, she said, you know, kind of like, well, suck it up and get back on there. Cause I mean, it's, you're not going to get any better if you don't. So I think as much as it might be hard at the time, I think I personally thrived on it. And that kind of has helped me out um, in, in, in the rest of my life. But, you know, I mean, I think sports in general is just, and the coaches, I've had some amazing coaches. They've still kind of lifelong friends today, just showing, I mean, believing in you. I mean, sometimes, sometimes it's nice to have somebody who believes in you even more than you might believe in yourself. As a competitive athlete, did you find that uh, those leaders and mentors that you had in the military were similar at all? Or, or how is that different between the military and uh, sports? You know, I think it's more kind of the tough love. I mean, the military, you know, you, you all wear the same uniform, but there's very much a hierarchy in, in, in rankings. And I mean, and I think you find more ver- more variety of, le- of leadership styles in the Army. I mean, some, you know, some leaders want to be your friends. Others don't. Others are, you know, it's a tough love. Others are more sensitive. So just you almost learn just to adapt with, I mean, in the military, like if you have a high ranking officer above them, like, I mean, you have to, you have to do what they say, regardless of if you want to or not, where, and as an athlete or with a coach, I mean, you kind of have a choice and, but in the military, you really don't. I mean, you signed up to, and you signed up for that because I, I willingly joined the military through ROTC. So it's, it's similar, but it's different. Um, and you just kind of learn to adapt with, with, with everything that, that surrounds that kind of hierarchy. So you lost your leg in 2004, and you were competing in uh, Beijing in 2008. What? When did you start thinking about the Olympics? So I started thinking about the Paralympics um, just a few months after I lost my leg. So, so I so keep in mind I I dreamed of being an an, an Olympian in the sport of gymnastics when I was younger, and now. So somebody came to Walter Reed. So they came to the hospital and they put a presentation on all about the Paralympic Games. And I basically sat there, you know, only months after losing my leg. But I listened as this gentleman told us all about the Paralympics. And, you know, if I trained hard enough and dedicated myself to a sport, I I could compete on the world's biggest athletic stage for somebody with a disability. I could wear a USA uniform um, that, you know, represent a country I defended over in Iraq. I mean, it was kind of like a no brainer, kind of like I had a second chance. So I left that meeting just knowing that somehow, some way, I mean, I was going to be a, a Paralympian. So I know that you were into skiing. Why, uh, why did you choose for the Paralympics uh, triathlon over skiing or another sport? So I initially started with swimming. So swimming was my first sport. Um, and I started swimming early on during my rehab at Walter Reed because I, I didn't have to wear a prosthetic leg. I could get into the pool and it just kind of made me feel like I, like I was whole again. And I, and I, I loved it. 
So I decided that I was going to give um, it a shot in the sport of swimming when I was medically retired from the Army. So I uh, moved out to Colorado Springs. I trained at the Olympic Training Center and, you know, saw my times get better and better. Um, but the Paralympics is not like the military where you just sign up and, and go. You have to beat your competitors and make certain times. And I was kind of a long shot to make the 2008 Beijing Paralympic Games, but I ended up doing everything I could do. And, um, you know, I ended up m making that team. So competing in my first Paralympic Games in 2008 in the sport of swimming. And then um, after that, turning to the sport of triathlon and then qualifying for the 2016 Paralympic Games in triathlon. Uh, what, uh, for you, for the Paralympics, what's sort of your best out of the three uh, disciplines, which is swim, bike, run? Uh, what is, what's your best? You know, it kind of depends on the day. Uh, the run, the run is always hard at the end. So I would say, I mean, you push yourself through all of them, but the run just being the last thing, I mean, you have to give it all you have at the very end. I would say my best, um, is probably the swim just because I was, you know, I went to the Beijing Paralympics as a swimmer and I just, I, I love the water. So the best is the swim. I said the one I need to work on the most is the bike. And then the run is just, I mean, the run, it is what it is. Some days are good. Some days aren't so good. So you have, you've had this amazing uh, story up to this point uh, from the Paralympics. What are you looking at um, and what's the process from here on out uh, in looking at the Tokyo 2020 Paralympics? So my, yeah, my goal is definitely to try to make my third Paralympic team um, again in triathlon for Tokyo 2020. And I mean, I, I there's no, I, I, they have not announced the team yet. I'm not for sure on the team and I just have to continue doing the best that I can do in these races that I go to and continuing to kind of work my way up the world rankings and get ranked as high as I can in, in hopes that I do make the team. So, you know, the peril is crazy that it's, it's less than a year out and we are, um, you know, we're kind of in the thick of it. So, I have one more race left, left this year, um, and then starting next year in March, it'll pick up again. And yeah, just doing the best I can in hopes of making that a reality. Now, obviously, you're you're a great competitor in your own right, but you do a lot to help others through your charity, Dare to Try. Uh, how did that come about, and uh, what do you do with Dare to Try? Yeah, so so Dare to Try is um, a Dare to Try paratriathlon club. And I co-founded it with two of my friends out of Chicago in 2011. And we, we, we all realized how sports affect somebody's life for the better and decided we were all triathletes. And we decided, why don't we start a club for people with disabilities and help them get into the sport of triathlon? So we provide, you know, coaching, training. There's adaptive equipment um, that athletes need, whether it's prosthetics or they're in wheelchairs and they have to use special um, custom made bikes that they ride with their arms called hand cycles or racing wheelchairs. And so helping, so providing those, um, we have year round program programming. We have camps that serve youth, adults, injured service members. And, you know, we had a modest goal of getting, you know, a few athletes to their very first finish line the first year. And, you know, nine years later, we have over 400 athletes on our roster. We have athletes that fly in from around the nation and I really feel like we're one of the premier paratriathlon clubs in the nation. So we're very proud of the people that we've impacted. Um, our mission is one inspires many, and our athletes, I mean, they inspire both on and off the race course. 
So you're uh, you're also involved in some pretty VIP things too. I uh, I asked your manager what I should ask you about, and uh, he he said that uh, make sure to ask her about dancing with President Bush, what that was like. So can you tell us how that came about, and, and also that you get to hang out with uh, with with the five living presidents? Yes, yeah, I've um, I've been fortunate to have my my fair share of time with with presidents and. Um, yes, so President Bush, uh, George George W. Bush, he puts on a mountain bike ride at his ranch down in Texas. It's called the W100, and he, he invites about 30 wounded veterans to take place in this mountain biking event. And I've been I've been to it twice. And the first night, the first time I was there, it's a three day event, and every night there's these um, event these like dinners that are put on, and the president and his wife. Um, Laura Bush, they they love music. So there's always kind of these live music acts at these dinners, and we I happen to be sitting next to them at one of these dinners, and the band is playing, and they're kind of clapping along. And I leaned over and I said, "Mr. President, would you like to dance?" And he looked at me and he said, "No, no, no, I'm not going to dance." And I'm like, "Okay." And then a few minutes later, another soldier came up and asked if his wife could dance. And she said yes, and got up and started to dance. And then he turned to me and he said, "Okay, I guess I'll dance." So then we got up and we shared this dance, and it's like he needed his, like his wife's approval. I mean, that's 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 amazing. Uh, but just kind of sharing this dance, of, you know, with my commander in chief, um, you know, while I was serving over in Iraq, and it was just such a moment for me. And then he went on to paint this book called, it's called Paint Portraits of Courage. And he, he paints on the side and he painted over 60 wounded veterans as part of this book and the honor of not just being in the book, but having the painting of this dance that we shared kind of in that book and memorialized really, really forever. So, so yeah. Um, and I've, I've seen him, you know, kind of through the years from time to time, he I happened to see him five days after the birth of my son. So he, he held my son Dallas five days after he was born. And he knows my husband, Brian, he calls him big Brian. And it's, um, yeah, he's just, I, I just, what, whatever you believe in politics, he's just a really great, great man. And then um, I guess along with that, he asked me to say the Pledge of Allegiance at the opening of his library down in Dallas, Texas and extremely historic day. Um, and, you know, standing in the back, waiting to go out on the stage to say the Pledge of Allegiance. And I ended up standing in a room with, at the time, were all five living presidents and their spouses. And I mean, I kept thinking, what am I doing here? Like, this is just, this is like so like surreal right now. And President Bush introduced me to all the other presidents, like as his friends. So I kept going around saying, nice to meet you, Mr. President. Nice to meet you, Mr. President. I mean, I didn't know really what, what else to say. So just, you know, a day I went, I went back to my hotel room that night, just kind of, you know, just exuding red, white, and blue, just, just really proud of, you know, my story where it had brought me and just, again, living in the country that we do. So you just mentioned that you have a son, Dallas. Tell us a little bit about your family. Yeah. So I have a great family. I, I love my family. It's, um, yeah, so my husband, Brian, and then we have um, two kids. We have my son, Dallas, who will be five on November 25th, and my daughter, Millie, who just turned two. And the whole new added aspect of life of, uh, you know, having more reason to, to get up um, in the morning, wanting to dream big and hope that my kids, you know, see, have big dreams of their own and just. I don't know. Being a mom is my favorite job. It's favorite and the hardest job in the whole world. But I'm just, I, I, I love it. I love my kids more than anything. And I just hope that they see me do the things that I do. And then in 
they can cheer me on. And when it's their turn, I'll turn around and cheer them on just the same. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a good life. So final question. I've been told that you have a very unique way. Uh, many people, when they have a loss, it's, it's something they remember, but don't celebrate, but you take a really unique approach to that. So, so tell me what happens every year on the anniversary uh, of, of losing your leg. You have a unique way of celebrating. So, so I, if I celebrate, it sounds a little cheesy to some people, but I actually celebrate losing my leg. And a lot of soldiers have what are called their alive days. So on the day every year that they lost, whatever they've lost, they celebrate being alive, which is a pretty genius idea. So I actually named what was left of my leg um, Little Leg. And we have a birthday for Little Leg every year. And it's, it's it's become this event where family and friends fly in. They're celebrating. They're dancing. We may or may not drink out of my leg, but I like those that come to find that out. Uh, but it's really a day of, of reflection also. like, And my hope is that those that come kind of take a moment to reflect on their own lives and just really how good we have it. You know, there's we, we often spend so much time thinking about all the things that went wrong during our days. But if you think about it, you know, we all have live amazing lives and we have a lot to be thankful for. Thank you for joining us for the Beyond Speaking Podcast. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen. To learn more about today's guest, visit beyondspeak.com. This episode of the Beyond Speaking Podcast, your technical director, producer, and head Steelers fan was me, Eric Woody. Brian Lord was your host and executive producer. Shout out to special consultant Lauren D. of D. and Associates and Robert Borquez for that sweet, sweet intro. If you've listened this far, do me a favor and justify my existence and salary by checking out another episode of the Beyond Speaking Podcast.